I want to invite you this morning to consider where your traditions, your personal theology has come from. And where appropriate to say, huh, maybe that's not biblical. Or where appropriate to say, that's why I believe it, it really is biblical. Because as sons and daughters of the king, we need to know what our father really wants us to know. And we need to be well versed, I believe, in the truth. So with that in mind, Father, we pray this morning that you would open our eyes to truth and give us greater understanding. We pray, Father, that our traditions, our backgrounds, uh, our previous beliefs would not be a hindrance, but would be a help. Lord, we realize that you have laid groundwork in all of our lives. And we believe and trust that you have laid foundation that is, that is true and solid and worth standing on. But Father, we also understand, as Paul said, that that foundation is Christ. And we stand on the foundation that is Jesus. And beyond that, Father, we stand willing and ready to let go of traditions that may not be biblical. And we ask that you will challenge those, give us insight to them, and help us to understand what it is we believe. Lord, open the pages of Scripture before us this morning and open our hearts to what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. It came about after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, that David remained two days in Ziklag. Now, you may remember the history of this. David was actually marching with the Philistines to go to battle against his own people Israel. We don't know if he was going to turn on the Philistines in battle. We don't know if he was just stuck between that rock and a hard place. We can't know because the Bible doesn't tell us and David isn't here to tell us. But we know he was marching and some of the Philistine captains were upset about this and they were worried that he might turn on them in battle. So the king said, look, you've got to turn back. You've got to head back and you can't march with us. And so David's off the hook. He goes back to Ziklag only to find out that the Amalekites have thrashed Ziklag and taken all of the women and children and all of their belongings and everything and laid siege to burn the city. So David and his men then go out after the Amalekites, after checking with the Lord. He says, go and take them, and they wipe them out, and they recover everything completely. And that's what was going on in David's life while Saul and his son Jonathan and his other two sons were fighting the Philistines and being killed and destroyed on Mount Gilboa. This is a simultaneous event. So at this point, David is unaware of what's been happening. He is now remaining in Ziklag after recovering everything, after his great victory. And that's where 2 Samuel begins. And on the third day, verse 2, it says, Behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul, with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And it came about when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, From where do you come? And he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, How did things go? Please tell me. And he said, The people have fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and Jonathan his son are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? The young man who told him said, By chance I happen to be on Mount Gilboa. Then behold, Saul was leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. When he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I said, Here I am. And he said, Who are you? And I answered him and said, I am an Amalekite. And then he said to me, Please stand beside me and kill me, for agony has seized me because my life still lingers in me. So I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown which was on his head and the bracelet which was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so also did all the men who were with him. 
They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And, and he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. At the tail end of 1963, the question raging through our country was, Who, who shot John F. Kennedy? Not only who, but what was behind this guy and how did it happen? The country wanted to know what had happened to this president. On a lighter note, by 1983, the big question in our country was who shot J.R.? Some of you may remember that important time in our history, considering who shot J.R. Ewing of Dallas. Anyway, I'm dating myself. Today, today people are asking who shot Benazir Bhutto in Pakistan? What's going on there? You know, the Pakistani officials and government are saying, oh, it was Al-Qaeda. And there are those in, in Pakistan are saying, no, it was the government and the officials there. The question we face as we open up Second Samuel is, who shot Saul? Who killed Saul? Who is really behind this? Now, if you're here last Sunday, you know First Samuel ends with Saul wounded on the battlefield at Mount Gilboa and apparently committing suicide. You also know that here in 2 Samuel chapter 1, it's apparent that an Amalekite takes credit for Saul's death. So how do we work this out? If you look back, flip back a page, verse 4 of chapter 31, 1 Samuel, it says that Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and pierce me through with it. Otherwise these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. And so people make the assumption he committed suicide right there. Well, it doesn't say that he committed suicide right there. It says he fell on his sword. And it says ultimately that he died. Well, back over in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 6, the Amalekite says, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and behold, Saul was leaning on his spear. Behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely, and when he looked behind him, he saw me and said to me, and called to me, and I said, Here I am. And you know, reading on down, that he says that he took the life, he took the life of Saul. So, did he commit suicide, or was he killed? I suggest to you that rather than an either-or scenario, that Saul had unsuccessfully attempted to commit suicide, falling on his own, own spear, as First Samuel tells us. But he wasn't dead when the Amalekite found him. He was lingering. He was laboring. He was still alive. And so, at that point, the Amalekite then assisted him and drove his spear through him and finally finished him off. But ultimately, again, as we talked about last week, it wasn't Saul and it wasn't the Amalekite who was ultimately responsible for Saul's death. It was the Lord. If you have to lay blame anywhere, you lay blame at the feet of the Lord. For First Chronicles chapter 10, verse 13 tells us that Saul died for his trespass, which he committed against the Lord. Because of the word of the Lord, which he did not keep, and also because he asked counsel of a medium, making inquiry. And he did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore he killed him and turned the kingdom of David, the kingdom over to David the son of Jesse. Very clearly the Bible says he killed him. He who? He the Lord. God was responsible for the death of Saul. Now this raises an issue for us that I believe is very important in our spiritual lives and in our understanding of things related to the Lord. And the issue very simply is who is really in control? Who is really in control? God is. Our blind assumption, however, is that we are. 
We walk out of here and almost instantaneously take control of our lives, or so we think. We live as if we truly are in control, but deep down in our spirit we understand there's a reality. God is in control. It's His world. If you've given your life to Him, you are His people. And we truly are not in control of ourselves. James says in James chapter 4 verse 13, Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city. We'll spend a year there. We'll engage in business. We'll make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting as is evil. James says, you don't have control. You are not in control. It's, it's a farce. It's a myth. It's a fallacy to think that we're in control of our lives. The only one who truly knows what's going to come tomorrow is the Lord. And there's an eternally serious truth here that must be recognized and reckoned with in each one of our lives, in our day-to-day business. And that is very simply, God's will be done. God's will be done. Whether you like it or not, whether you understand it or not. And even as we read through a lot of the brutality in the Hebrew Scriptures, we kind of wonder, wow, God's will be done. God willed the death of Saul. The Bible tells us that God killed Saul. He took his life. And, and it's hard for us to get our minds around this kind of thing. And yet the reality is, gang, God's will be done. He is the Lord. And I am not, and you are not. The Father even says, one of my favorite verses, Isaiah 46, verse 9, Remember the former things long past, for I am God. There is no other. I am God. There is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Romans 8.29 tells us the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. By the way, Paul is specifically in that moment, you Bible students know he's talking about Israel. When he says, my gifts and my callings, the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. What he has promised to Israel, he's going to follow through with. Again, like it or not, whether it fits into your theology or not, God is going to do what God says he is going to do. And David understood this very well. David got it. With but one exception, David never presumed to take the crown from God's anointed Saul. He had opportunity, we've seen this a couple of times in David's life, where he had opportunity to kill Saul and take the throne. He had been anointed for the throne. He knew he was. He had been called to be king of Israel. He knew this. And yet, as long as Saul was alive, David said, I will not presume upon God to take control of this for myself. God will work it out. God will make it happen. It's his call, not my call. Remember one time he toyed with the idea of challenging Saul for the throne. It was in 1 Samuel 24 where he cut the edge of Saul's robe. Remember Saul went in to relieve himself and David sneaks up and cuts off the hem of Saul's robe. And we talked about how that was a sign of authority. The hem of the robe of an Israelite man showed his authority, his position, his power. And in cutting that hem, David was challenging it momentarily. And that's not a stretch because we know the Bible tells us that his conscience bothered him because of it. And he realized he was challenging the authority of one who had been placed in that position by the Lord. David would say to you and to me even this morning, God's will be done. 
Whatever God's will is, whether it benefits me in the, in the short term or not, God's will be done. Later on, when David had another chance to kill Saul, he told his man Abishai in 1 Samuel 26 verse 9, he said, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? David also said, As the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come that he dies, or he will go down into battle and perish. And that's exactly what happens. Saul dies in battle. The Lord did just as he said he would do. He promised Saul would die on the battlefield, and so Saul did. But watch this. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 1, David confronts this Amalekite pretty violently. Verse 14. Then David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, Go, cut him down. So he struck him, and he died. And David said to him, Your blood is on your head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. What's David's problem here? Saul's dead just as he had hoped, just as he wanted, just as he desired, you would think, because he was in line for the throne. All he needed was Saul to be out of the way. And now David has the kingdom, and he's got everything playing out very nicely before him. But here's the thing. David takes God at his word. This man after God's own heart says, God promised he would put me on the throne, so I'm going to wait until God does it. God promised he would take care of the Saul issue. It's not my burden to carry. It's not my control. It's the Lord's. He recognized Saul as God's anointed by divine determination. He also knew by the divine determination that God would remove Saul as king. And he saw any human action to take matters into humans' hands as both treacherous and treasonous, worthy of the death penalty, and so he has the Amalekite put to death. Even though God's anointed did not live like he was anointed. Even though God's anointed was not about God's business, as we see in the life of Saul. Even though God's anointed was David's own adversary, David said, God's will be done. God's will be done, not mine. I want to talk for a moment this morning about divine determinism. What God has determined He will accomplish. What He and His sovereignty will do. But this raises a question in our theology and in our thinking. It's one of the great doctrinal challenges in the church today. In fact, in the church of the last four or five hundred years. And that challenge is the issue of the sovereignty of God versus the choice of man. The free will of man versus God's will. And which one has primacy? And which one takes precedence? And in the historical church of the late 1500s, early 1600s, during the season of the Reformation, two opposing positions arose in the church. These opposing positions were argued and clung to, even violently at times, to the point of large-scale church division, and it still impacts our belief system today. It still has long-range effect on how you and how I believe in what the Lord has for us. On how we even read Scripture. And I'm talking about Calvinism and Arminianism. Calvinism and Arminianism. Now, some of you may never have even thought about these two perspectives. You may figure, well, you know, what's the big deal? Okay, that's, that's just what some guys taught or wrote about. It has impacted the church in dramatic ways. Now, I want you to see this this morning. These two perspectives are so entrenched in the teachings of the church that many churchgoers and even pastors today don't realize the depth of their influence 
in theology. Calvinism and Arminianism. Let's talk about Calvinism first. Calvinism as a doctrine grew out of the teaching of the great reformer John Calvin, again, back in the 1600s. Now, it grew out of his teaching, although John Calvin himself did not write the five points of Calvinism, which has been come to be embraced by certain segments of the church. His followers developed these five points, not Calvin himself. It was based on Calvin's teaching, but they developed it and carried out the teachings to what they believed to be the logical conclusions. Calvinism is often called Reformed Theology. It provides the basis of the teachings for the Reformed Church, Baptist Churches, Presbyterian Churches. Now I realize in talking about the Reformed Church that I'm treading into an area that is very near and dear to the heart of our very Dutch Oak Harbor. <laughs> which has a very Dutch Reformed background. And if you hadn't heard that Oak Harbor was Dutch, all you have to do is look at one of the big celebrations down there every year, and that's Holland Happening, which I personally think they should call Holland Days. <laughs> it would be better that way. I'm sorry, I know it's a little saucy of me, but I, I think that's what they should call it. Calvinism, Reformed Theology. And it's entrenched and based on the teachings of John Calvin, and it came to a five-point perspective. Here it is. The five points of Calvinism, by the way, it makes up an acrostic, which is TULIP. T-U-L-I-P, TULIP. So let's tiptoe through this together. (laughs) Sorry. Calvinism. The T stands for total depravity. John Calvin taught and his followers put together that Calvinists believe that man is in absolute bondage to sin and to Satan, unable to exercise his own free will, even to the point of trusting in Jesus Christ without the help of God total depravity. Now, as I tell you these things, test this against what you believe. Think about this in your own mind. Do I buy that perspective or not? Total depravity, number one. Number two, unconditional election. Unconditional election. Calvinists believe that God's foreknowledge is based on the plan and purpose of God and that election is not based upon the decision of man. In other words, God decided ahead of time who would be called the elect, who would be elected to be his people and who would not, without exception. has nothing to do with what you believe or what I believe, that God preordained and preplanned ahead of time that certain people would be elected to be Christians and others would not. Certain would be saved, certain would not, and it has nothing to do with what we choose or believe. God preordained this total depravity and unconditional election. Number three, which leads into the L in TULIP, is limited atonement. Calvinists believe that Jesus died to save those who were given to him by the Father in eternity past. In their view, all for whom Jesus died, who are the elect, will be saved. All for whom he did not die, the non-elect, will be lost. T-U-L-I, the I, number four in Calvinism, is irresistible grace. Which I like the sound of, but this is what it means. Calvinists believe that the Lord possesses irresistible grace that cannot be obstructed by the will or decision of man. They taught that the free will of man is so far removed from salvation that the elect are made spiritually alive by God even before expressing faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. And if a totally depraved person wasn't made alive by the Holy Spirit, such a calling on God would be impossible. Irresistible grace. And number five in the tulip of Calvinism is the perseverance of the saints. 
Perseverance of the saints. Calvinists believe salvation is entirely the work of the Lord and that man has absolutely nothing to do with the process. The saints will persevere because God will see to it that he will finish the work he has begun. And those are the five points of Calvinism. Embraced today, again, by those churches that I mentioned, and there is a single word that defines Calvinism well, and it's determinism. That God has determined everything that's going to take place, it's a done deal, and what you choose, so-called, to believe about it or not, is really beside the point, because God's already got it all figured out, and it's done. So if you happen to be a Christian today, it's because God preordained, He pre-elected for you to be a Christian back in eternity past. If you're not, God preordained for you to go to hell. And that's determinism. God's done everything necessary for salvation. And all you can do is either come along for the ride or get run over. Depending on whether God has placed you in the car or on the road. So that's Calvinism. Well, an opposing view stood up against Calvinism called Arminianism. In the late 1500s, a man named Jacobus James Arminius, who started out himself as a strict Calvinist, began to change his views. Now his followers, after he died, a year after he died, in 1610, they wrote down a document called the Remonstrance. It was a stirring five-point response to Calvinism's tulip. Although the Arminianists didn't use an acrostic, which may have been part of the reason why the Calvinists were upset. I don't know. Arminianism forms the theological foundation of the Methodist Church, Wesleyan Churches, Nazarene Churches, Pentecostal Churches, and many other charismatic churches. So again, look at your background. Think about where the teaching is and how you may have been taught and impacted by these. Arminianism teaches five things. And again, you can line these up with the five points of Calvinism because they are contrary to their opposed. Number will. Number one, free will. Sorry, number one, free will. Arminius believed that man was not totally depraved, but that there was enough good left in him to will or to choose to accept Jesus for salvation. Just enough good left that you could see the good of Jesus and choose. So free will. Whereas Calvin was determinist, you have no free will. Arminius said, no, man does have free will. Number two, conditional election. Arminius believed that God had foreknowledge of the elect, but that man's act of faith was the condition of him being elected to eternal life. God foresaw man exercising his free will in response to Jesus. So, free will and conditional election. Number three, universal atonement. Arminianists, Arminianists yeah, held that redemption was based on the fact that God loves everybody, that Christ died for everyone, and that the Father is not willing that any should perish. Do you hear some scripture in there? Mm-hmm. Now you may have heard some scripture also in the five points of Calvinism. The death of Christ, according to Arminianists, provided the grounds for God to save all men, but each person must exercise his own free will in order to be saved. Number four in Arminianism, obstructible grace. Arminianists rejected irresistible grace, believing that since God wanted all men to be saved, he sent his Holy Spirit to woo all men to Christ. But since man has free will, he's able to resist God's will for his life. Arminianists believe that God's will to save all men can be frustrated by the finite will of man and that man exercises his own will first and then is born again. In other words, you do choose whether or not to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. And number five, Arminianism teaches falling from grace. Falling from grace. 
Rather than the perseverance of the saints of Calvin, Arminianists believe that man cannot be saved by God unless it is man's will to be saved, and then man cannot continue in salvation unless he continues to will to be saved. In other words, you can lose your salvation, according to Arminianists. Again, you Bible students probably heard things in both of these doctrinal statements that you agree with. And you probably heard some things in both statements that you go, mm, I'm not so sure about that. And I don't, don't know about you, but it's really just been in the last couple of years with myself where I've looked at these two opposing views and, and processed them through. And even thought about how they would impact my own faith. But there are doctrinal and undoctrinal things in both of these statements. Both positions have produced good fruit and both positions have produced bad fruit. Let me give you an example. Calvinism's rotten fruit. Strict five-point Calvinists often either ignore or oppose evangelism. Because, hey, if God's already preordained everybody who's going to be saved, why go after them? Why share the gospel with anyone? Why tell someone about Jesus if God's already decided who's saved and who's not saved? Evangelism's out the door. We don't need it. It's a waste of our time. If you're saved, you're saved. If you're not, you're going to hell. You better pack some extra bottled water because there's nothing you can do about it. You're going. Historically, some Calvinists have even gone so far as to object to putting John 3.16 on a sign, fearing that one of the non-elect might read it, believe it, and get saved, thus thwarting God's determined plan. Which kind of denies Calvinism, doesn't it? Arminianism has some rotten fruit. And that's just one example of Calvinism. There's more. But in Arminianism, in its strictest form, Arminius taught that man is responsible for saving himself by keeping his own good works of devotion. Works-based salvation. You are only saved if you're good enough. If you keep faith. The Bible says if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Although not the view of Arminius himself, the teaching from some pulpits put the emphasis on man's effort to the expense of God's grace. The doctrines of man, and here's my point, the doctrines of man can become awfully silly and can infect the way that we tend to think, which is why over and over and over we come back to the word. That's why again and again you have heard me say, don't take my word for it, take God's word for it. There may be, and I'm sure has been, and I'm sure will be, a time when from the pulpit at the bridge I will preach something that I am absolutely certain of. And if you will go back and study it biblically, you might find error. I know, shocking. (laughs) But to never take the word of man, you always take the word of the Lord. And you always elevate the scriptures to determine and understand what it is that God has called all of us to believe. The issue at stake here is not who was right, Calvin and Arminianists. And if, if you thought as I began talking about these two perspectives that I was going to stand up and say, this one's wrong and this one's right, and here's where we should believe, you missed it. Because both have inherent problems. The question should never be, what does my church teach? The question should always be, what does the Bible say? Whether the Bible agrees with my particular position or tradition, if it does agree, great. If it doesn't, I'd better reevaluate. Because it doesn't matter if I hold to it, what matters is the truth. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8 tells us the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. 
Psalm 33 verse 10 says, The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. So considering those five points, we can ask the question, what does the Bible teach regarding the depravity of man? What does the Bible tell us? Romans 3.23 All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Without exception, we're all sinners. Titus chapter 3 verse 4 says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. In other words, the Bible teaches man is depraved and man needs a Savior, and I believe Calvin was right on that point. Left to our own devices, we could not possibly save ourselves. We would all be bound for hell. Left to ourselves. We need grace. We need it desperately. Well, what does the Bible teach regarding the election of God? Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. This happens to be the book and the chapter that most people will turn to for this concept of election. Especially if it being foreordained and preordained for us. Ephesians chapter 1, the letter of Paul to the church at Ephesus, beginning in verse 3. Listen closely to what Paul writes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood and forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be, would be to the praise of His glory. Now I want you to see something here that's interesting. I believe personally that in the first 12 verses of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is not talking to the church. He's not writing to Christians. He's writing to the Jews. He's writing to his own people. And so when he makes a statement that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, he predestined us to adoption. We have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses. Verse 11, we've been predestined according to his purpose. The predestination talked about there is salvation. It is redemption through Jesus Christ for the Jewish people. And I go, Rick, where are you getting that? I'm getting it from the very beginning of verse 13. In him you also... After listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. You also, 
You Gentiles, you non-Jews, you are also caught in. You are grafted in, as he will talk about in Romans 9, 10, and 11. You are connected through the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross. God's plan was so big that he preordained, predestined a people for whom Messiah would come. And once Messiah came, all of the world could make choice to believe in that one and same Savior. So the predestination talked about in Ephesians 1 is a preordained choice of God to have a people he would call his own and then to graft in those who would choose him after the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross. Now Romans chapter 8 verse 29 Paul writes, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he called. And these whom he called, he justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So what is this saying? Very simply this, that God knew who would call on his name. And that does not deny the free will of man. God in His sovereignty knew that you would choose Him. And knowing that you would choose Him preordained that you would be holy and made righteous through Jesus Christ. He knew you were going to do it. But because He knew it, and because I do it, doesn't cancel each other out. Because God knew something ahead of time doesn't mean that my choice was taken from me. I still have my choice. But God knew I was going to make that choice. Well, how is that possible, Rick? Well, because He's God. Because he knows everything. But knowing and forcing, those are two different things. I can tell you with certainty how my kids are going to behave and act in certain situations. With certainty. Now I'm not God and I don't have sovereignty and I haven't seen them behave in certain ways. But I know how they're going to. Have I forced their decision to act in such a way? No. But I know. God even more so knows because he has seen it take place. He knew who would call on his name. And so Romans 10.13 says, There's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now does that not imply that anyone has opportunity to call on the name of the Lord? I believe it does. Throughout the scripture, there's this beautiful balance between God's determination to save man and man's choice to be saved by God. It's not either or. It is, again, both. Number three, what does the Bible teach regarding atonement? Well, first of all, you know, if you're a Bible student, you've heard this before, that atonement is not even a New Testament word. It is an Old Testament concept. Atonement meaning covering. But we realize that in Jesus Christ, we don't simply have covering. We have complete washing, complete erasure of our sins. The word in the New Testament, propitiation, which now replaces atonement. We're not just atoned for and covered over. We're washed completely clean. But atonement, according to Calvin, was limited and exclusive. Only certain people could be atoned for, covered. According to Arminius, 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 He said atonement was universal and all-inclusive for everybody. The Bible says, 1 John 2, verse 2, that Jesus himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those, listen to this, also for those of the whole world. The death of Jesus makes available salvation to everybody, not just to a select elect. 1 John chapter 3 or John chapter 3 verse 16 the verse you know so well for God so loved the world 
that He gave His only begotten Son. It doesn't say God so loved the elect that He gave His only begotten Son, but He loved the world. And gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. And he who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe, he's been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. It all connects down to your choice. My choice. A decision to believe or not believe. It doesn't sound to me, biblically speaking, like redemption is limited to a few, but in all truth, to anyone who would, who would accept the grace offered. In fact, the very words belief and faith indicate action on our part, don't they? I have to will to believe. And so it involves my will, my choice. Number four, what does the Bible teach regarding grace? Calvinism said, grace is irresistible. Arminianists believed grace was obstructible. You could stand in the way. You could deny grace. Now, I like the idea of irresistible grace because honestly, the more I study the Word and look at Jesus, the more irresistible I find grace the more wonderful it is, the more I am overwhelmed by it. And yet, is it irresistible to the point that you cannot help yourself? John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 The Bible does tell us All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God However verse 24 says Being justified as a gift by His grace Through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ that Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 a, verse, a couple of verses I use all the time By grace you have been saved Through faith And that is not of yourselves It's the gift of God Not as a result of works So that no one may boast So based on these it almost sounds like irresistible grace it is only grace that saves us through faith, but it's not of ourselves. Grace is irresistible. God's grace alone saves, but can it be resisted? Can grace be denied? Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26 says, If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment. That sounds like I can lose my salvation. The Hebrew writer goes on and says in verse 29 of chapter 10, How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? The Hebrew writer indicates that there is a man, a person, who has accepted grace only then to turn around and trample it and receive judgment for it. Wait, wait, wait. I always believed that once saved, always saved. I always believed that once I was in the hands of the Father, that, there, that there's, I can't lose my salvation. The Bible indicates that it is possible to resist your salvation. Grace is irresistible, but amazingly people do choose to resist it. Now continue this train of thought, because the fifth question is perseverance. What does the Bible teach about the perseverance of the saints? Do I persevere to keep my salvation by my works, proving my righteousness? Or does Jesus preserve and keep my salvation for me? Which is it? 
Can I lose my salvation? Now again, Jesus said in John 10, No one can snatch me, snatch them out of my hands. I and the Father are one, and, and, and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hands. But Jesus also calls us to persevere. He doesn't say, Hey man, once you've accepted Jesus, once you've gone into the waters of baptism, once you've made that commitment, He doesn't say then just go wander off and do whatever. He says no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 9 verse 62 which implies perseverance. Paul said to young Pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16 pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things for as you do this you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. So the question comes up, so if I don't persevere, can I lose my salvation? Now I've said this before, you can't lose your salvation, but you can leave your salvation. You cannot lose what God has done for you, but I guarantee this, based on what I've read in the scripture, God is not going to drag anyone kicking and screaming into heaven. God is not going to force anyone to cross the threshold of the pearly gates. He's not going to grab you and say, Look, I know that you've denied me, rejected me, and rebelled against me for the last 20 years of your life, but by golly, I'm going to save you because I said I would. The truth of the scripture is, He will not let you go, but you can choose to pry apart His hand and walk away. You do have that choice. This is uncomfortable for us in Christianity because a lot of times I've talked to people who say, Well, I, I did that. So am I now lost forever? No. Because grace, grace is phenomenal. And all it takes on the part of someone who has rejected or rebelled against God to be saved is to immediately turn back to the Father and He's waiting, open-handed, to receive you to Himself. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4 is a disturbing passage and it reads, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and who have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify themselves to the Son of God and put Him to open shame. That's a little scary goes on and says for ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful for those to those for whose sake it was tilled receives a blessing from God but if it yields thorns and thistles it is worthless and close to being cursed close to being cursed and that's key it ends up being burned here's the question to ask about any human teachings what is the fruit of it What is the fruit of the teaching? Where does it lead those who follow such teaching? Jesus said in Matthew 7.16, You will know them by their fruit. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit. Every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. But every every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. And he's talking about teachers. Specifically false teachers. You'll know the false teachers by their fruits. What's the fruit of their ministry? What's the fruit of their teaching? What is it bringing about in the lives of people who are listening? And listen to me on this. The fruit of man-made dogma is often strife and division. 
when it's the doctrines of man the tendency is for it to yield strife hey discussion is great even disagreement fine but division is hated by the Lord absolutely hated I want to read you a quote from, uh, written by Chuck Smith. This is in a book that he wrote called Calvinism, Arminianism, and the Word of God. You can pick it up on the internet. But he writes, When a particular position on the scriptures causes one to become argumentative, legalistic, and divisive, I question the validity of that position. I seek to embrace those things that tend to make me more loving and kind, more forgiving and merciful. I know then that I am becoming more like my Lord. If you have come to a strong personal conviction on one side of a doctrinal issue, please grant us the privilege of first seeing how it has helped you to become more Christ-like in your nature. And then we will judge whether we need to come to that same persuasion. Let us always be certain to look at the fruit of the teaching. I'm neither Calvinist, nor am I Armenianist. I'm a Christian. And it's my greatest and strongest desire not to hold or not to wear the moniker of man, the calling card of man, the name of man. We, we study this in the Revelation study, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. talks about the church of Sardis. And the church of Sardis was a picture of a dead church. And the Lord Jesus, in talking to Sardis, says, You have a name. You, you, you have a name. But you're dead. I think it's very interesting there that the word name in the Greek is onoma. It's where we get our word denomination. The denominational world grew out of the Reformation movement of the 1600s. A movement that started with passion and fire and desire to be biblical and godly and very quickly settled into denominationalism and division and strife and dogma and doctrinal disagreements. And any time we follow the teachings of man rather than the teachings of the word, we're in danger of doing the exact same thing. What did Jesus declare would be the single greatest distinguishing mark in the life of a believer? If if they will know us by our fruits, what is the number one mark that you are a follower of Jesus Christ? That's it. Jesus said in John 13:35, "By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another." That's the key. And precious people, in our desire to take God at his, at his word and to know the truth, which I desire passionately, I want to walk in truth. We can't ever forget the greatest truth of all. It's not Calvinism, and it's not Arminianism, and it's not Bridgism. (laughs) The greatest truth, the divine determination of our Father is seen in one ultimate goal, and that's love. And that's that we be formed after His image, in an image of love. And you think about this, what was the fruit of David's theology? How did David's theology work itself out in David's life? He's often recognized for his military valor, his political genius, even his spiritual insight. You look at David and go, wow, what a man of God. But I believe the reason that he was called a man after God's own heart, possibly more than anything else, was the depth of David's love. He loved Jonathan. That I can understand. But he loved Saul. And I have trouble understanding that. He loved Saul. Verse 17 of 2 Samuel chapter 1. David chanted with this lament over Saul and Jonathan his son. 
And he told them to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow. Behold, it's written in the book of Jashar. Now, the book of Jashar is a lost document. It's mentioned back in Joshua chapter 10, verse 13 as well. But apparently it's a book of poetry of the great battles of Israel. And so David says it's written here, verse 19, David sings, Your beauty, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not on the streets of Ashkelon. That's Philistia. Or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice. The daughters of the uncircumcised will exult. O mountains of Gilboa, let not dew nor rain be on you nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life. (laughs) What? Are you kidding me, David? Saul was beloved and pleasant? Did you miss your own history? And yet David cries out, beloved and pleasant, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothes you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How have the mighty fallen in the midst of battle? Jonathan is slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. And I wonder how Jonathan's sister Michael, David's wife, felt about that statement. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war have perished. This poem, this lament that David sings over Jonathan and Saul is touching and it's genuine and it's been called the genuine outpouring of a noble heart. David's theology, his belief system produced a passion that was absolutely godly. A love even for Saul, his tormentor, that was unusual. And I believe would not have been there had it not been for David's theology which was that he understood God to be a God of love. Now you might say, hang on, one thing still disturbs me here. How does the violence of Saul's end, and David's calling for the death of an Amalekite, how is that the fruit of love? It just seems brutal. Well, let me put it to you this way. Where God is concerned, and when God calls for the death of an individual, especially in the Hebrew Scriptures, When God calls for the death of an entire people like the Amalekites or the Canaanites, when He tells Israel, go in and wipe them out completely, people say, how is that loving? I can't believe in a God like that. He's too mean and He's too brutal and He's too self-serving. The problem is we take God and we place Him in the place of humanity. We begin to look at God, the Creator, and we put Him on the witness stand of the created. We assign human expectations and restrictions on an eternal God as though He were human Himself, and we judge His actions from our temporal viewpoint. And that is greatly problematic. You want to hear loving? You want proof that God is a God of love? This is not only what we do to God when we judge Him, it is what God did for us. The Lord chose to come to the place of humanity. God put on human restrictions and expectations. He took the witness stand of the created, though He was the Creator. He stood on the witness stand of the created and was judged guilty, though He was sinless, placed on the cross, 
And he proved there once and for all that his determination for mankind has always been love. He proved it. Now, I don't fully understand the judgments of God. I don't fully understand why he called for death when he called for death. Why he did what he did. I don't fully understand why he does right now what he does. I do understand this. That the determination of God is a determination of love. That he loves us and he proved it by dying for us. Romans 8, 38 and 39. Paul wrote, Neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So whether you get confused about doctrines or dogma or theological paradigms, my plea, and I think the plea of the word, And the plea of the Lord is that we would pursue love first and foremost. That whatever our belief system is, let the fruit of it be the fruit of love. Let's walk in truth. Standing on truth. But living in love. And if the truth is the truth in our lives, it will produce the fruit of love in us. Father, you alone know the depth of love. Because as your word tells us, you are love in and of yourself. Love incarnate. You proved it to us. And Lord, in our limited human perspective, we don't always get that. We don't always know how love is supposed to work itself out. But we praise you for being the example. We praise you for being a God of love. We praise you for all that you have shown us. We praise you, Lord, for all that you are. I ask, Lord, that you will give us a greater sense of the truth. Help us to know what is right, what is scriptural, what is doctrinally sound. Especially, Lord, as we pursue you in the word. And we do want to be well-versed. And we do want to understand what you've written down for us. And so we study. As Paul said, we study to show ourselves approved. Workmen and women who do not need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth that in our right handling Lord I pray that the the product of that would be love that we would be more compassionate more merciful more giving more caring more patient and more kind to those around us and may that be the hallmark of our evangelism Lord that we are a loving people in Jesus name Amen Amen